0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, your host, and I am joined by, in Washington, D.C., Rosa Brooks, uh, recently returned from Amsterdam. We want to hear about that. And in California, we have Emily Brandwin, uh, the host of Washington for Beautiful People, our Deep State podcast, which you've got to go listen to, uh, and which, by the way, got great followership in its very first week. And in Miami, Florida. Um, we have Katie Fang, an attorney and former prosecutor, and we are also joined on this episode by Ed Luce of the Financial Times, who is alone among us. Oh, no, I guess we're now, Rosa, you're back in Washington, but Ed is also in Washington. So, Rosa, before but, but, we get but into Ed all is, of this— Ed the- is
1: always alone among us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's no, sort no. of That's... metaphysical existential truth about all of us, David.
2: I'm going to if take I'm that, as, that. A, as a half glass full metaphysical <laughs> observation.
1: We're all alone in a crowd.
2: <laughs> wow, this sounds really
0: you. That's what I learned well, in
1: Amsterdam.
0: Well, that's what I wanted to know. How was Amsterdam?
1: Uh, Amsterdam was very Dutch. There were a lot of bicycles <laughs> and canals.
0: <laughs> and and did you did you meet the king?
1: I did meet the king. I met the king, I met the queen, and I met the princess, who is actually what the Brits would call the queen mum.
2: Did you split Um, the bill?
1: Uh, (laughs) No, I I, I demanded that the king pay for everything.
0: (laughs) Um, And did your mother embarrass you publicly?
1: Well, my mom was awesome. Uh, she gave a great speech. There was a certain irony about having my mother give a speech. Uh, you know, my mother give a sort of anti-hierarchy, anti-elite speech in front of the king and the queen at the royal palace. But, you know, um,
0: <laughs> that's the way it goes. That's, a, that's how these things go. Um, but, but on the other hand, it's further sign. All you have to do is sort of get to Holland and move north. And they seem to have figured out government and philosophy a little better than the rest of us have.
1: Yes, um, yes, uh, and lots of Dutch people were confused about Donald Trump, and I said we are also confused about Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, well, it, 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 it is it is confusing, and I, I think one of the things we want to you know talk about a little bit here, just because of the, the nature of the week, and I don't want to bring the conversation down, but I. I think it connects to everything else is, of course, the week is dominated um, also by the uh, uh, lying in state and later uh, the funeral services for George H.W. Bush, who was the 41st president of the United States. Um, and one of the things that has struck me is the um, juxtaposition between the reaction to Bush uh, and the behavior of the president uh, which echoes, of course, what happened uh, not too long ago with, with John McCain. Um, and, you know, George Bush was not a perfect man, nor was he a perfect president. And there's plenty uh, to take issue with in the life of the man politically or from a policy perspective. Um, but everybody who knew him uh, and worked with him uh, not only finds something in his service to uh, admire, but but above that, his character to admire. And I've just been listening to stories every day, all day long about George Bush and his kindness or George Bush and his commitment to public service or George Bush and his ethical values. And they're filling a whole week of it. And I was thinking Rosa, that if Donald Trump were to die, they would have trouble filling four minutes, much less four days with this kind of commentary. Um, uh, And, Now you know. Apparently, I mean, this podcast will air for most people after the funeral ceremony at the National uh, Cathedral. But um, uh, the the Trump isn't even speaking at that. Uh,
1: Well, no one wants to let him speak at that,
0: right? And I think this is you know, this is a very interesting thing. Is his week comes from being at the G twenty, where he was isolated from. You know, did all of America's allies effectively. He was a pariah at the meeting, sort of standing, yeah, staring off is, into space.
1: Come on, he's waiting for the great leap forward.
0: Yeah, no, he did make a great leap forward comment, which revealed that he doesn't know what the great leap forward is. Um and and then, you know, now he's now he's gotten home and he's being isolated from America's leadership as well. I, I've never seen it. This guy is a pariah. He should be the most, you know, sort of the hub of activity, and and yet nobody wants to touch him. I, well, you know, this
1: this is true. To, I'm, I'm actually, David, you put into my mind uh, by raising the question of how long would a would a Trump epitaph be, and what would people say? Uh, of course, it would be very short if he had to be praised by U.S. officials. But I'm trying to imagine now what if what if uh, uh, Duterte. Rodrigo Duterte or Victor Orlan wrote Trump's epitaph. They would come up with lots of things to say in his praise. I'm sure. So it all depends on your perspective. If we ask the uh, uh, the world's authoritarian killers to write the epitaph, it would be it would be long and effusive.
0: It might be, although the Russian media has turned on Trump and said um, you know, nasty things about him, the Chinese have turned on him. um I, I, I even, even in those cases, because of the timing of the Cohen um, revelations, Trump really couldn't meet with the people that would have met with him, like Putin. And then, of course, MBS was a little bit toxic, even for Trump. Um, Eddie's the loneliest man in the world. Aw. <laughs> uh, uh,
2: I thought I was the loneliest man in the world. Um, as a <coughs> met, metaphysical but, but solitary and, and we, condition
1: Ed, we're lonely together so that's okay we're
2: lonely together the loneliness of a crowd um i, I think uh somebody was quoting the if stone uh, famous quote about funerals are always an occasion for pious lying um but in in bush's bush senior's case You know, I really don't think it is. Uh, I I think that these are sort of genuine um, outpourings that uh, that would have been and have been said about him when he wasn't dead. Um, And that this was uh, genuinely a figure of high public integrity um, who lapsed on occasions most notoriously um, in how he defeated Dukakis, where he did sort of stoop to fairly Trumpian tactics. It should be said. Um, but the man who did it for him, Lee Atwater, who who died tragically young. Um, before he died, gave an interview saying exactly what they did, which was a racial, racial dog whistle. Um, so, you know, even in recognizing the extraordinary public virtue of, of um, George H.W. Bush, and I, and I think, you know, as a European, or at least still technically for a few months, I, I remain a European, that his role in, in um, 1989 and 1990 in allowing Germany to take the credit for the fall of the Berlin Wall and encouraging European integration um, and German unification um, was extraordinary in that if there'd been a different president, uh, if there'd been somebody like Trump in charge or or many other presidents um, for that matter, um, might not have happened. Um, it, it, most presidents would have gone to the Berlin Wall and they would have been crowing on that wall that this is my victory, this is my photo op. Uh, and Bush understood that he didn't want to crowd people out. He wanted to share the credit. And uh, that's just one example of what a, a, a very sensitive statesman um, he was. And I think, you know, uh, it, it, it's it's underappreciated um, uh, around the world because he, he was sort of sandwiched by two much, much more egotistical um, presidents. Trump would have Steve Bannon and others giving lots of eulogies if they could organize an alternative national cathedral in an alternative parallel universe.
0: Yeah, well that's true. I mean, you do raise the prospect of a Trump state funeral taking place at a NASCAR track with a bunch of people with <laughs> with 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 red hats with uh, little black ribbons on them perhaps or something like that. Um, but I don't know, it, David,
1: you know, I, I, I I, am I'm not convinced that Trump is going to retain the support of really any significant segment of American society by the time he's done. So I, 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 I think I think I think it would be a. it would have to be a very small venue <laughs> <laughs> for a man with very what? small hands. You mean, you like, mean like, an like an olive garden? garden, like an olive garden, maybe? Uh, yeah.
3: Yeah, uh, that's no, what I was you envisioning. You're giving way
4: too much credit for that. You NASCAR's. Can, uh, some olive gardens are quite large, actually. I, I You're talking more
3: <laughs> like roadside roadside taco stand, which you're really talking well, about. Like. I was just thinking the breadsticks would woo people to come.
0: Mm, that's true. That's true. Because I don't think we
1: could you fill know, in
3: I, I have, have menu. to
0: admit, I've, I've never been to an olive garden. I, I, they they sure have I good
1: breadsticks.
0: Yeah, well, I'll try to. I'll All try you can eat breadsticks better. and salad. I try to keep that in mind, you know.
1: Um, David, I, David, I, you are revealing yourself as a member of the of the elite. despised elite.
0: Um, the, yeah, rest NAS- the rest of us are going to go to a NASCAR.
1: The rest of us are going to go to NASCAR, and we're going to eat breadsticks, and we're going to make fun of you.
0: Look, I've been to car races, <laughs> and I've been to Cracker Barrel, and I've been to Applebee's, and I've been to Target and Walmart. Know. You know, a lot of places <laughs> like that. Um, <laughs> you know.
1: <laughs> nice try. Nice try. No,
0: no. Okay, doesn't work. Okay. Um. Okay. Look, I I I do think though that you know there is a you know there is a broader issue that's hanging in the air as we look at all of this, um, and it has to do with public service. I you know I'm a historian of the National Security Council. I've written a couple books on it. I've written a bunch of articles about it. And and the the the, the best functioning White House national security apparatus of the past 70 um, years since it were since it was established was the george H w Bush White House and it it was for a number of reasons including that he had more international and national security experience than any incoming president that we've had uh, probably since Eisenhower having been a Former uh, U.S. UN ambassador, head of the CIA, envoy to oh. China, and vice president for eight years. But more importantly, he knew how to manage. Um, by the way, he he did not think Reagan did, and the tra- Reagan Bush transition in the White House um, was actually very tense because the Reagan and Bush people did not much like each other, and they let go all the Reagan people and 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 largely replaced them, um, but. But it was also because of his management style, where he wanted other people to be heard. He had very strong um, uh, uh, advisors like James Baker and Brent Scowcroft, who were also good friends of his, but who would say no. Uh, And there was this kind of chemistry that worked well because of the man at the top demanded it worked well. uh, And there was a real collegiality. None of these things exist now. So not only was he dedicated to public service, um, but he was actually good at public service, um, uh, whether you agreed with the ultimate policy outcomes or not. Donald Trump is something else. Another person who's something else is, is Robert Mueller. And we have the president of the United States actually tweeting things out like, Mueller isn't the man you think he is. And Katie, wasn't there, isn't there like a, crazy right-wing lawsuit against Mueller now accusing him of treason?
4: Yeah, so Jerome Corsi, who we heard a lot about the last few weeks, because like one of those bit players in a really black comedy, you know, in a really dark comedy, you kind of... Um, have this Jerome Corsi guy who we know is a birther. So that was his introduction or his entree to Donald Trump and their relationship had to do with this whole birther conspiracy regarding – President Obama, but Jerome Corsi was given a plea deal by Robert Mueller, and he turned it down. And he said, "I'm I'm an old guy. I'm not going to be forced to basically admit that I lied. I just got really confused, just like Roger Stone's gotten confused a few times." And so Jerome Corsi released the um, prospective plea that he had with Robert Mueller, and it basically was lying to the federal government, which seems to be the. the trap for a lot of people these days. But again, it can't really be a perjury trap. Just as a footnote, I spoke to Roger Stone last week, Thursday, and I asked him about the Michael Cohen deal and all this other stuff. And he's like, Oh, it's a perjury trap. And you know, that whole concept talking, it be a perjury trap if you're telling the truth. But anyway, so Jerome Corsi said, I'm rejecting this plea deal. Oh, and Hey, by the way, I have hired a man by the name of Larry Klayman, who has been defeated in court more times than I think that um, anyone can count, to sue. And that's what he's done. He filed his lawsuit where he's basically now accused Robert Mueller and his team of treason against the United States in an attempted coup d'etat against Donald Trump. That's literally where that's gone. And he filed it today in federal court.
0: That's amazing. By the way, Larry Klayman, I just I have to offer this up because I know you guys will be entertained by this. I have actually run afoul of Larry Klayman because when I was in the Clinton administration, um, I, I, I worked as uh, deputy undersecretary of commerce and then later as acting undersecretary of commerce. And they were going after the Commerce Department on all sorts of things because Ron Brown, the former head of the DNC, was running the Commerce Department. And there were they were saying that people were sort of given... This was a kinder, of innocent time where the big scandal was that maybe a donor was given a seat on a business mission um, uh, uh, to another, uh, you know, b- b- trade mission uh, because they were donors, and they were looking into this as a as a high crime. Um, when think about that, but I didn't have anything to do with that. But I was in the Commerce Department, so I got um, uh, subpoenaed. I had to go and dep- get deposed by them. Um, and I went in, and I didn't have a lawyer. They thought that was a little weird. Um, and then they started asking me questions, and they said, uh, "Well, so you've been uh, close associate for the Clintons of, of, for a long time?" And I said, "No." And at the time, by the way, I'd never met a Clinton, and and even though I was <laughs> deputy undersecretary of crown, and and they <laughs> said, and I, they said, "No, you've you've you, you've been a close associate for many years." And I said, well, no. Um, and they said, well, you know, you're testifying here uh, and, 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 and you're under oath and, and uh, you could be uh, uh, penalized for perjury if you don't tell the truth. And I said, no, I've never met them before. I don't have any relationship with them. And then they, they, he pulls out a folder very dramatically and he says, Mr. Rothkopf, I have here a copy of the Little Rock whatever, Bugle, and uh, uh, dated 1984. And uh, uh, I I want you to rethink your answer. Did you or did you not know the Clintons before? And I said, no, I didn't. And they said, well, right here it says you were in Little Rock in 1984. It even quotes you. And I said, um, did you read the article? <laughs> and he said <laughs> and he sort of looked a little befuddled. Um, and I said, well, you should read the article because I was at Little Rock because I was directing a production of Ferenc Molnar's The Guardsmen and we were doing something with the University of Arizona with Little Rock. It starred Lucy Arnaz. and Larry oh and uh, and uh, I knew you would appreciate this. Element. And I'm I'm and, dying. And he and, and Clayman sort of looked down and he was like, uh, uh, oh, all right. Well, moving on. Um, typical so, Clayman. Yeah, I mean it was so ridiculous and spurious. And I I think probably I should have been indicted for some of my work as a director. Um, but mostly in that case, <laughs> for it's if you if there's a crime against Mediocrity, Um, but 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 you know, Rosa. As I as I listen to all of this stuff, um, you know, you get this question of there are people suing Robert Mueller for being a a traitor. You've got the you know we're we're in some kind of a national crisis over what public service means, and I think part of the reason that Trump got elected is. A lot of his base thinks politicians are corrupt. They're all corrupt, and so's he. But so what?
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I think that that's I think that that's right. I think there's a tremendous amount of of cynicism. I think that a lot of the what what sort of passes for support for Donald Trump really comes out of more a sort of despair. Uh, you know, the, the, a, a kind of nothing matters. nothing makes any difference. And and Trump is just you know I, I very much think that in the election of 2016 a vote for Trump for many people was not a vote for Trump per se it was just a vote of you know fuck him uh, let's just let's just lob this cannonball into the middle of everything and see what happens um, and and I, I I do think you know I think this is something where Steve Walt who's been on our podcast before basically has it. Right, I think there's a profound failure of of the elites uh, in both parties in this country, um, and you know, a failure to look out for much of the rest of America. A failure to think about the importance of actually listening to people in the rest of America, and I don't just mean that sort of fabled white working class, which which I think is the least of it. You know, I, I think this this also goes to talking to. Middle-class Americans, to African Americans, to Asian Americans, to Latino Americans, uh, and and you know I think that that not just amongst those who voted cast the, what was really in some ways a protest vote for Trump, but also for many of the voters who didn't vote, who just stayed home. Uh, you know, it was out of a sense of deep hopelessness of nothing's going to change. Why bother? And and that, that I think is the you know the single biggest challenge facing facing all of us, the good guys, if you will, uh, you know, as we move into 2020, you know, that, that we, we saw higher than typical voter turnout in the midterm elections. But but it's still, it's not going to be enough, particularly given the way, you know, gerrymandering has sort of rigged uh, electoral results and the, the sort of overcoming the structural problems created by our electoral college system and our two senators per state system, you know, the only way we're going to get back on track is if we could get really massive voter turnout to to overcome those things in 2020.
0: Yeah, you know, another dimension of this, though, is that if you believe that the whole system is corrupt, um, then, you know, no, no rules apply. And, uh, one of the way you know the, the the most pernicious elements of this, sold by the the, the Trumpists and um, and people like Claman who are out there saying you know Mueller is corrupt, even though you know I can't think of anybody further you know more above reproach um, is is that you start seeing the parts of the system that are actually supposed to be apolitical. As being political, or as as being politicizable, um, uh, because you assume everybody has a political agenda, uh, and this has led to the politicization, not just of the Department of Justice, uh, or the battle the president has had recently with the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court about <laughs> whether whether you know the justices are Democrats or Republicans. But also, Emily, you know, with with things like the, the view that the the intelligence community yes, should yes, play yes. a political role, right? It's um, it, I, 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 I I
3: yeah, yeah sorry.
2: sorry. Go on. No, I was just okay, say it's, it's interesting because I get a all the time. All the time either in tweets, tweets or people asking about it, and they're saying, oh, they, they – you know, the intelligence community, CIA, FBI, they definitely have a bias. Everybody, Everybody who, works who works at the, at the agency, agency or works or at the, works bureau, the bureau, we're all human, so, so course of course we have, we have opinions. opinions.
3: But, but having, having worked there, I can, I can say with 100%, 100% certainty, certainty, I've never I've worked, worked with, a with a bunch of people who people are more, more dedicated, dedicated to the, to the mission, mission and a loyalty, and, a loyalty and, they and they check their politics, their politics at, the at the door. It is, it such, is a such a fact-based based organization where emotion opinion, opinion. kind of kind goes, of goes out, out the door and you're, and you're just, just relying, relying on facts. So the idea that people are, are working on, on some, some kind some of kind deep, deep state, state secret, secret agenda, agenda is so is laughable and it's also, also just so highly, highly insulting to the women, women and men, men who have worked, worked there, there for decades, decades, and decades and decades. You know, I have you friends know, my who friends have worked who've there 30 years who now say, you know, now they want to leave because of Trump, but who have worked through every single administration because it's not about the president per se, it's really about the country and it's about the oath they take. To the, country, to the country and to, and to the, the, service the service that they're, that they're doing. doing. And, it's, and it, to, me, to that's me, that's the real crime, crime that now, that now we're in a time, time where people are, are actually doubting, doubting the integrity of the, integrity of the FBI. FBI. I get it I get with, it the, with CIA the CIA because of just the just mystique the that the CIA has, for better or for worse. Or but the, FEI, the FBI, that you're, you're also seeing that amongst you know GOP voters, they're doubting the integrity of this organization that before now never had that.
0: You may think this is this sounds a little bit all over the place, but I actually think it connects back, Ed, um, to um, George H.W. Bush. Because George H.W. Bush didn't get along that well with Ronald Reagan because Ronald Reagan was owned more by the hard right. And because Reagan was much more of a populist. And because he took uh, undertook a number of things that undercut the way the system was supposed to work, Iran-Contra. Um, but also did some other things which we are now paying the price for, like work to eliminate the fairness doctrine, um so that uh, you know which set the stage ultimately for the rise of Fox News. He also helped fast track, by the way, Rupert Murdoch's citizenship so he could buy the largest broadcast network in the country at the time. Um, and uh, by the way, if you really if you really want to entertain yourself with how circular this is, Go back to, um, you know, uh, read about the, the, you know, the early days of those campaigns and how young Roger Stone went to young Donald Trump and aging Roy Cohn to help the Reagan campaign, which Stone was running in New York State, and f- you, had Trump helped Stone find Reagan campaign headquarters. Uh, next to the 21 Club downtown in Manhattan. I mean, in other words, this is all caught up in, in this turning point, which actually was Reagan. And that Bush is the outlier of all presidents since then, because in some ways he was the most uh, a, a vestige of the way the system used to work. Uh, and that around the time of Bush's one-term presidency, you also saw the rise of Newt Gingrich the, the extreme hard right uh, as a continuation of, of Reagan, which has led us to where we are today. And so, you know, Bush Bush, is not the, you know, sort of the last decent man, uh, but he's also a symbol of a turning point in American history
2: that has now soured
0: everything, Ed.
2: Yeah, no, I, I've um, always had mixed feelings about Reagan. And I think, you know, with the rise of Trump, Um, people who might have had a more um, uh, nuanced view about Reagan in the past have tended to sort of contrast Trump with Reagan. Um, But I I think Reagan's, you know, role in in history is complex, but uh, that Trump is very much uh, actually a natural product of the party um, that Reagan ran and the direction in which he took it. Uh, I think Reagan you know, was, was a sunnier character. Morning in America might be his epitaph and evening in America might be Trump's, but um, they're talking about the same day. Um, and I think that the um, racial uh, dog whistles that Reagan used in the 1980 campaign um, flowed directly um, from some of the work that Nixon had done with the uh, uh, Southern majority um, following the Civil Rights um, um, uh, legislation of the 1960s. You remember LGJ, LBJ turning to his speechwriter and saying, "We've lost the South for a generation." Well, it's, it's you know closer to two generations. Um, now. And so I do think that, you know, if you look at Reagan's legacy, if you look at how he used um, um, uh, covert appeals to race, implicit appeals to race, um, to uh, uh, build um, the sort of new, more conservative majority, then clearly Gingrich is is a child of Reagan, and he's very much a father of Trump. Um, So the Bush's nemesis uh, was probably Pat Buchanan. I think Pat Buchanan was the man who finished Bush off. And what made Bush so out of touch um, with the Republican Party is that, uh, of, of, of even back then, was that he was a patrician. Um, He did believe that you should take political hits in order to do the right thing. He he broke the um, read my lips, no new taxes pledge because he believed that a fiscally responsible budget deal, a bipartisan budget deal was in the national interest. Um, so he, he, he took a political hit very consciously um, that probably helped give rise to the sort of pitchfork rebellion against him, helped give rise to Ross Perot and helped um, bring about the end of his presidency after one term. And unfortunately, the lesson from that um, is that you don't take a hit. Um, for the team, for the national interest, that you will not be rewarded in this lifetime um, for acting um, in that way, and that that old phrase I can never, you know, being a B movie, um, really quite sort of um, lowbrow cultural aficionado, um, the the line from um, the senator in, in Gladiator, "I might not be of the people, but I am for the people," you know, is is not what is not what gets you reelected.
1: But I, I think I mean I think you're you're still you're being too nice to to George H W Bush and and it is you know it is absolutely true that if when the point of comparison is Donald Trump that Bush looks like Abraham Lincoln George Washington uh, Nelson Mandela <sighs> Martin Luther King rolled into one maybe with a touch of Mother Teresa um, but you know as 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 we were saying earlier, you know, let's not forget uh, many of the self-interested acts. Uh, there's a good piece by David Greenberg, friend of Deep State Radio, in, in Politico a couple of days ago on Bush's many self-interested acts, uh, ranging from, um, uh, as uh, I think David already mentioned, the uh, uh, Willie Horton business uh, in his campaign against Michael Duk- Dukakis, which was not exactly a, a uh, sacrifice of self-interest on for principles, very much the other way around. There was his pardoning of all the Iran-Contra defendants, uh, Bob McFarlane, Elliot Abrams, Caspar Weinberger, which was absolutely self-interested. It was to protect protect himself uh, from further investigation because he was up, up to his ears uh, in that particular scandal. Um, you know, there was his uh, total total about face on supply side economics for purely self interested political purposes. So I'm not I'm not ready to uh, hand a halo to to uh, H H uh, W here.
0: Well, I don't th- I don't think you should. But you know, on the other hand, um, as I look at all of this and and I see that you know we that we. Based on what we've been saying, we've been working for thirty years, thirty-five years, to get to where we are today via Reagan and the people around him, and Buchanan and Gingrich and the Tea Party and Sarah Palin, and you know on into Trumpland, um, and you know Mitch McConnell and some of the lowlights that exist in the, in this world now. Um, and yet it brings me back to a point, Katie, and the point is it's something we brought up, I think, on the the first podcast of this week. But the, 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 the point is um, uh, Americans are not rioting in the streets, um, even though the majority of Americans think the president uh, is doing a lousy job. And even though the majority of Americans are worried about What he did with 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 this, Um, and I and I think that this may be because, to some extent, Americans still retain faith in the fact that the system will work, that Mueller Mm -hmm. will prevail, that the Supreme Court will do what it has to do with Kavanaugh on it or without, because of guys like John Roberts, who again has got a mixed record, but seems to be willing to stand up for certain key principles. Um, and and you know, you're know you an attorney and you're in the system, but I, you know, I don't think we've reached the point where Americans feel the system has failed. And in many respects, I think we're at a point where this, we feel the judiciary system is gonna save us from the other parts.
4: Well, I think it kind of cuts both ways because as somebody who's deep in the trenches on a daily basis, um, I know that I haven't given up hope or faith and I've seen about as ugly as it can get both not only in the criminal arena, but the civil arena. I do think for the very first time in decades, we have an exceptional politicization of the judicial system. And I'm not talking just the recent Brett Kavanaugh hearings, confirmation hearings vis-a-vis SCOTUS. I'm talking more along the lines of There are people who don't ride in the streets because they do believe that that white knight – is, is Robert Mueller and that there is still credibility and dignity and integrity in agencies like the FBI, the office of special counsel, et cetera. And I do believe that one day soon, fingers crossed, um, sooner than later that there will be all of the answers to all the questions we've been pining over for the last few months. But I also think that on the far end of the spectrum, you have people that are also not riding in the streets because they do believe that Donald Trump has to Successfully exposed. Um some type of nefarious element that has always existed in our judiciary, in our criminal justice system, in our agencies, both federal and state. And so they think that he's the savior. They think Donald Trump is the guy that is peeled, you know, back, um, peeled the scales from the scales have fallen from their eyes. And now they see that their suspicions all of these years are, are correct that there is this insane kind of, um, Jerome Corsi-esque Mueller conspiracy going on where people are trying to um, unseat and, and, and get rid of people as, quote, amazing as Donald Trump. And so I think that never the twain shall meet, obviously, and I think that that's the reason why you have serious people digging in their heels and holding out, holding out for one thing or another, because we all know that depending upon the outcome of the Mueller investigation, Mueller could deliver and Donald Trump's head on a platter um, with uncontroverted evidence of his complicit um, activity, knowledge, et cetera, And there's going to be a section of the American public that's going to say that it's still fake. That it's fake news, that it's not real. They're gonna say that it was all, you know, trumped up, no pun intended, charges against the President of the United States. And so I think that sadly, again, for the first time and really, really first time in decades, you're seeing just an absurd polarization of the judicial system. And people are either going to believe um that truth and the American way will prevail, or they're going to think that we've all been duped this entire time and whatever the results are of any type of trial or sentencing or guilty plea or indictment, that it's just all fake news.
0: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep struggling for this shred of optimism here. Corey's not with us this week. She'll so be back next week. And so I'm trying to fit this tiara of optimism on my head. It doesn't fit very well. But 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 Emily, you know I do, I I think the other thing in which people ultimately may have some faith is what Ed mentioned earlier, which is elections. You know, it's it's like we've got you know you know two ways to save ourselves from further slide in this direction. One is the judiciary system working, uh, but the elections produced a shift in the House, and now the House is going to behave in a different way, but there's 2020 is now two years, less than two years away. And, and we're going to be in the midst of that real damn soon, which is a little horrifying. And I did see that Bernie is like, okay, I'm ready to go. Uh, and I
3: was
0: like, oh, no. yeah,
3: exactly.
0: Yeah. No, if you're a Bernie bro and you're listening to this podcast, find another podcast because this is going to be a real uncomfortable place for you, I think. Um, uh, because I, you know, to me, the Bernies of this world reduce the chances that the Democrats can actually win. And we've seen how that works. But but there is... I,
1: I have no issue with Bernie's politics. I have an issue with the same old faces and, and with you can choose which word you want to put your emphasis on there. Um, I would, I would also be very happy... If Hillary Clinton runs again, uh, if Joe Biden runs, uh, I would add them to the list.
0: I am am with you 100%. I am with you 100%. As as I've said before, I think I said it on the podcast, but I said before, I've reached a, a disturbing age. I used to feel real uncomfortable with the idea of a president of the United States being younger than me. And I have now reached the age where I'm real uncomfortable with the idea of a president being older than me, um, and I am substantially younger than all those people that you mentioned, because I think we need we we need a change. But most of the people who are running are younger, and they they do represent a change. And you know, I listen to the the, the the your little secret uh, uh, dreams that you talk about, uh, you know, on in your Twitter account and and now on the podcast, Emily and. And it sounds to me like you may have some faith in that system, too.
3: I do. I was the midterms gave me faith. I was like horribly terrified. I also take credit for more people voting because I think I personally harassed everyone into getting out and voting. But it gave me some faith. And I think if we see new blood, new faces, I think that's going to instill some power and some faith and motivation to get out there. And we'll you know, restore everything that we've lost over the past two, three years where everything just seemed to go down that, you know, shithole. And I think, I think midterms did that. I mean, as a woman, it absolutely did that for me to see so many women now running and getting, getting elected. To me, I was, I was nervous about that to see how people would react. And so I am, I'll borrow the tiara just for a little bit because I also like to accessorize, but I do think I do have some optimism, and I think there's there's reason to have that.
0: Ed, what about you?
2: Re- reasons for optimism? Do you have any? You, uh, I just want
0: to see you. I just want to see you in the tiara of optimism.
2: I want to um, see how that fits on you. C- can I wear a cravat of opti- optimism? I just don't <laughs> think I'd. I wouldn't look very fetching in the tiara. No, no <laughs> very me. But I, 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 um, I'm, I'm going to have to take a rain check on the the, opt- the quest for optimism. Uh, I, I could produce, you know, some time honoured homilies, but I, I, I don't think I, I'd, I'd rather wait and see what happens. The, the 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 optimistic thing I will say is, lots of things are possible. That spectrum contains positive outcomes as well as very dark ones. Um, but I don't right now. I don't right now see, see things that are going to transform the mess that we're in, um, uh, and I just see possibilities.
0: Well, that's, you know, pretty depressing, um, and we're running out of time here, and when things get dark and we're running out of time, I always turn to Rosa to really put a fine point on our depression. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, um, no. It, but I, I, I,
1: but, but I share Ed's um, sense that that on the spectrum of possibilities, there are good things as well as catastrophically awful things.
0: Um, yeah, that's true. I, I want to turn the subject in the last thirty seconds here, in a completely different direction. i really enjoyed your attacks, Rosa, on Sheryl Sandberg and Lean In, and I saw that Michelle. Why, thank you, David. I, and I saw Michelle Obama had joined you in those attacks. Yeah, and I just I wanted to give you thirty seconds to talk about that.
1: <laughs> no, it's 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 excited. To, it's exciting to have Michelle Obama joining me in the in the I hate Cheryl Sandberg uh, corner uh, and and cursing away merrily. Um, I, I think that I think that. Uh, Cheryl Sandberg has been revealed over time <laughs> as not exactly the role model uh, a woman ought to have for a number of reasons, some of which have to do with gender gender politics, and some of which just have to do with uh, uh, generally disgusting and unethical behavior by Facebook. Um, so I hope that this will this will lead lead all those women who are who are you know going out and buying Lean In and Joining these little lean-in circles, that uh, they need to uh, toss that book and and go read a uh, room of one's own instead.
0: <laughs> hey, you know, I just it gives me one idea here as we wrap up, uh, Emily. Yes. Don't you have on it? Don't you have on an upcoming episode? Um, my uh, friend Nell Scoville.
3: I do. I'm talking to her Wednesday.
0: Do you? Do, do you know who co-wrote *Lean In*?
1: Um, I I don't remember. I at one point did know, but now I don't anymore because the brain well, cells have gone away.
0: They apparently not functioning very well because you could have. That was a pretty leading question. Um, Nell Scoville. Well, I was going oh, to uh, I was
1: going to guess Nell Scoville, <laughs> but that that
0: <laughs> that seemed too easy. <laughs> Uh, but I was thinking maybe you and Emily should talk, and maybe you could join her for a few minutes and have a little cage match with Nell. It would be so entertaining.
1: Oh God, no! I, no.
0: Because when I like have gone, I've gone after Cheryl Sandberg a few times, and I and I get these emails, some very thoughtful emails from Nell, uh, explaining why it's unfair for me to go after Cheryl Sandberg in one case or another. Um, well, it's just a, it's just a thought. But for those of you who want to hear the other side of this, uh, listen to um, uh, uh, a- Emily's podcast, Washington for Beautiful People, um, where, you know, you'll go because you think Nell Scovel is a great comedy writer, who wrote a great book on comedy writing. And then you can stay for some lean in debate. Um, uh, in any event,
2: you know, there's lots Uh, i I think rosa i think rosa should write a book entitled recline ladies
0: i think rosa wrote an article for a publication which shall not be named it was pretty close to that
2: it was pretty Um, good i reread it
0: yeah no it was very it was very good and the publication is foreign policy i'm just joking around but you should go you should go and and read it kudos rosa
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm reclining hey, as we you, speak. <laughs> yeah. Did you guys well, know that it's 50 years from the release of
4: Night of the Living Dead? And I was just—it just reminded me of Donald Trump for a second there, just in the administration. That's, that has got
1: to be significant. There, I mean, could, could it, 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 we, it,
4: how could we ignore that that connection? I just, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think we talk all about Bush, and we're missing the point because it's really Night of the Living Dead. That it's mm-hmm. it's a much better it's a it's a much better historical reference. Um, well, folks, your assignment is to go and see Night of the Living Dead. Uh, by the way, I saw Bohemian Rhapsody last night. I really liked it. For for what it's worth, I know it's a controversial controversial subject out there, but I enjoyed it. Um, in any event, I also liked Widows. By the way, a week ago, very good. Um, in any event, if you've got time to go to the movies, go to see the movies. But uh, tune in to Emily's show, um, yeah. Washington for Beautiful People. Tune in to upcoming episodes of Deep State Radio. Tune in to National Security Magazine, which will be later this week with Jake Sullivan. Uh, read our daily briefs. Uh, read our weekly brief on Tech on tech, um, and uh, and come back, you know, next week for Deep State Radio. Uh, where I think it may be the first week in a while where we're going to actually have the old gang of uh, Corey and David and and, uh, Ed and Rosa all together.
2: Yay!
0: uh, Yeah, kind of a Christmas party, holiday festivities. (laughs) But Uh, we'll we'll still be fundamentally alone. We will. We'll each be together and yet alone. It's so poignant. (laughs) Um, And uh, let everybody uh, really uh, enjoy the rest of your Hanukkah. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Deep State nerds everywhere. Go to deepstateradionetwork.com for more or follow us at Deep State Radio on Twitter or follow any of us on Twitter. Um, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media.